Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Kraus. In this episode, we have our final interview of this season, and we're returning to where we started last fall, to the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, where researchers are studying, among other things, how nanoparticles can actually help with plant growth. The person we're interviewing today is Dr. Wade Elmer. I'll just read to you from his website bio. Dr. Elmer serves as chief scientist for the Department of Plant Pathology and Ecology. As a plant pathologist, he studies the ecology and control of soil-borne fungi that infect crops important to the citizens of Connecticut. He has expertise in the fungal genus Fusarium, which contains many species that cause diseases of crops. So you'll hear a lot about Fusarium in this interview, but there's a lot more as well. He's interviewed by our graduate students, Natalie Hudson-Smith from the University of Minnesota and Jaya Borgata from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Natalie and Jaya, as you may recall from their first interview, were at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station visiting to do some research for the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. And they talked to Dr. Elmer about a wide-ranging set of topics, uh, including Fusarium, but also things like why Native American people in the area always planted corn, beans, and squash together, and what we can learn from that. And they talk a little bit, too, about nanotechnology and how nanoparticles might help to find what Dr. Elmer calls the next fix for the world's problems. So, big topics. So, without further ado, here's our interview. So, we're here at the Connecticut Agricultural Research Station. And we're talking with Wade Elmer. And Wade, what is your job title? I'm chief of the Department of Plant Pathology and Ecology. And uh, I'm a plant pathologist. So aside from the administration of the department, I also have a research program on soil-borne diseases of vegetables and small fruits and um, the ornamentals. So how would you define what exactly is a plant pathologist? Okay, a pathologist is somebody who studies the diseases of plants. There are four major pathogens of plants. Fungi are probably the most damaging, then bacteria, then viruses, and then there's nematodes. And these are the four categories. Sometimes they interact together to cause more disease, but um, usually most diseases are caused by one of these pathogens. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about your research? Like, do you work mostly on fungal diseases or bacterial diseases? Mm-hmm. Yes. Specifically, I became interested in diseases caused by a group of fungi called Fusarium, which are very common. I could isolate anywhere from four to eight species in your backyard in any time of the year. But many species are pathogenic. Some of them will produce mycotoxins, like in grains, and so they're of great concern because of their threat to human health and animal health. But many of these fusarium species uh, are, are cause root rots and wilts and so forth of plants. The ones I've been particularly interested in are the ones that cause wilts. And just about every plant you can think of has a fusarium wilt associated with it. You know, So the ones that are grown here in Connecticut are the ones I concentrate on. Many times they're not a problem. They don't build up in the soil. Or maybe they're more of a problem down south or whatever. But there are several in the state that I work on. Okay, so we're here at Sustainable Nano, and there's plenty to say about plants and sustainability, but is your research going in a nanoparticle, a nanoscale direction? Very much so. So what do you see, or maybe even the future, or the present of the role of nanotechnologies or 
nanoparticles in agriculture? Are there any already being used or are people mostly looking ahead? I think people are just looking ahead. Right now, there's still these, uh, in, in my mind, there's still some safety issues we need to resolve. We need to know, are these things accumulating in the environment? What's their fate in soil? What's their fate in the plant? Do they actually make it to the edible portion of the plant we're harvesting? So far, I've done numerous studies with watermelon and eggplant, and we find no more of the metal in the harvested fruit compared to the control. And I've even looked at uh, asparagus, where I've actually did some root applications in the field and the following year, since it's a perennial, and in the spring is when the spears come up, I went out and harvested this year, and surprisingly, no, no, no more nanoparticle, or the element I was looking at in the treated plants than in the controls. Do you see a difference in growth between the treated and controls when you look at those asparagus plants? I did them last year and did not see a difference. This year, uh, I'll be looking for that. In a couple of weeks, I'll be going out there with the soil augers and I'll be taking soil plugs around the plants and extracting the roots from them and looking at the infection frequency of fusarium on these roots. And uh, hopefully I might have enough to do a digest to see if there's more copper there. But that's a good question. Uh, in the greenhouse, yes, when I put these nanoparticles on young plants, I see a growth enhancement. What's the difficulty in going from a greenhouse study to a crop study that would be done in the field? Well, you, ha you have less control in the field. So a greenhouse study can be done once or twice, and, you, and usually you can be fairly confident of, of the work. But in the field, with variability from year to year, and uh, rainfall patterns being different, and inoculum density differences, and just the way they plow the fields, and everything, it's hard to get reproducible data in the field. In my first eggplant experiment, I saw real positive effects of nanoparticles. I didn't believe it. Next year, I did it again, saw the same effect. Still didn't believe it. The third year, we had a drought, so I didn't really see the, the differences. It certainly saw a trend that agreed with the first two years. Then the fourth year, we did it again, and we, we, saw, we saw the effects. So this will be our fifth year of looking at nanoparticles in the field and we're expanding to eggplants and pumpkins and wine grapes and soybeans and all these crops that's incredible it's fun yeah it sounds really fun a um, lot of a uh, low-hanging fruit as we say <laughs> you know these things are very easy literally and figuratively yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so what kinds of nanoparticles are being applied to plants and how would you apply them to plants? Because, I mean, just going to like a gardening section, I can think of things I can buy to spray on plants. I can think of enhanced soil mixtures I can mm -hmm. buy. Um, right now, we've, we've screened a battery of, of nanoparticles, just, just metallic oxides. In our first couple of studies on tomatoes, we found that the copper oxides were the best. We've also occasionally seen benefits with manganese and zinc, so we still look at those. But they always perform better than the bulked, uh, the larger bulked equivalent or the salt. Okay. So we've been staying with those. How to spray them on? This is a good question. I'm, I'm interested in getting these micronutrients, the copper, the manganese, and zinc, to the roots. So people say, well, why don't you just drench these the soils with this and that would be a very quick way of probably getting it to there but I'm worried about buildup of these nanoparticles mm -hmm. in the soil over time so I'm trying to be very environmentally conscious and since we're talking about sustainability I think spraying the, the young plants 
and then putting them into the field is probably the least amount of exposure we could get. And we're seeing a response. We're seeing a season-long yield increase with just a single application. So we need to see if this spraying in the field would enhance that further. I'm actually going to look at that this year. I'll be looking at the single application and comparing that to plants that I'm going to spray maybe three times. Okay. You've talked a little bit, not on this podcast yet, but while we've been here about the importance of earthworms to mm-hmm. plant health. And I can see, especially as in the center, how many organisms we study. If you thought about nanoparticle buildup in the soil, if that affected the earthworms, maybe you would tip your balance way back over to the other end Mm -hmm. again if your application was wrong? Very much so. Most of the research out there with earthworms is looking at toxicity and such, but I would love to know if, um, you know, maybe low doses might be stimulatory, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Probably not. Earthworms are very, uh, they're excellent indicators of soil health. Just counting the number of earthworms in the soil is a good is a function of how healthy that soil is. There's a lot of companies that do a lot of expensive tests to try to determine what the health of your soil is, and I think just counting the earthworms is, is better. So you've mentioned in passing watermelons and eggplants and asparagus. Do you have a favorite plant to work with or one that's particularly interesting? Well, I came to Connecticut back in 1987 to work on a disease called Fusarium crown rot of asparagus. And that was a real difficult thing. And so I spent a lot of time working on that. So that's still a favorite of mine. I wish it responded better to the nanoparticle treatments so I could continue to work on that. But right now, I'm not seeing a, a big effect in the field, but that has to be repeated. And asparagus is a very long crop, so you might expect to take five years before you start seeing the effect. Wow. Is the, is the crown of the asparagus the, the tasty part, the top part? That's my favorite part of it. Yeah. Well, the crown is actually in the ground. 95 percent okay. of the plant is underground. It's a very wow. massive root system. And then every year, all those carbohydrates that overwinter build up, and those will produce the young spears that then emerge. So those are actually the young spears, and you, you'll harvest those for a period of time, and then you stop harvesting. They keep coming up, but then they turn into the ferns. Can you eat the ferns ever? No. Wouldn't want no. to do that? <laughs> no, no. You know, they're just, it's just too much lignin. So for the at-home gardener, Are there any signs to look for with crop diseases or home remedies that you would suggest? Most people grow tomatoes and cucumbers and pumpkins and zucchini in their gardens. And these are are like guaranteed to get foliar diseases. On the lower leaves of tomato plants, at least in New England, we get a disease called septoria. And it causes little spots. It starts to defoliate. It's not too much of a concern if... But if you overhead irrigate, you promote the environment that makes the disease worse. So, okay. Is that just how a normal gardener with, with you're right. water? So you should always water from the ground, you know, and try to keep the leaves dry as possible. You know, with heavy dews every day, that's hard to do. But anything you can do to keep the leaf surface dry. So spacing your plants so you can get air drainage through there so it will dry off quickly. Watering in the morning is very important. But still, you have to lose over half the leaves on the plant before you'll really start seeing big differences in yield. But another problem is if you start losing the leaves, then you lose the shade, and many times the tomato fruits will be uh, sun scald. But to control septoria, just those things I mentioned, watering in the mornings and uh, keeping the leaves dry is one of the best things you can do. There are fungicides that work very, very good, but I think fungicides should be avoided in a home garden. The other disease I mentioned were like the powdery mildews. 
and they can be suppressed with some really simple home remedies. One is just milk. Take any type of milk, whole, skim, powdered, doesn't matter. Mix it maybe one to one, or you could actually mix it one to two, two glasses of water to one glass of milk, and spray that on the plant. You have to put it on before the disease shows up, because once you see the disease, it's too late. So in Connecticut, that disease always shows up at the end of July, guaranteed. So about the middle of July be the good time to start spraying that. And be sure to spray the undersides of the leaves. It's hard to do, but if you have a little hand sprayer, you can turn the nozzle up and mm -hmm. just go underneath there. And spray about every 10 days. Another thing that works well is uh, baking soda. So you can just take baking soda, take a tablespoon per gallon, and, and just spray that onto the onto the plants. Again, always trying to get the undersides. I have to ask, just because while we've been here in Connecticut, you've told so many stories um, about like any plant diseases in the states that you think have played a big role in either like the direction of agricultural history mm -hmm. or something like that. Oh, well, our, the discipline of plant pathology was founded because of the potato famine. Okay. And that was the beginning of the discovery that plant diseases were causing this problem. So that led to the, to the birth of plant pathology. We think of Anton Berry. He was the German who actually completed the full stages of, of determination. We call it Koch's postulates. And he gets the credit for that. But a lot of people before him worked on the disease. But um, recently I was telling somebody the term banana republic. Have you ever heard the term banana republic? I've heard it. I've okay. seen it. The brand. Yeah, that's a brand, but it actually was coined for the South American countries that were usually um, military countries. Frequently, there was a disease of banana, and back when I was a child, the bananas were all called were, were Gros Michel. That was the name of the variety. They were bigger, yellower, a little bit more yellow, and sweeter. Mm -hmm. And um, then all of a sudden, a strain of Fusarium came in and pretty much destroyed all that because bananas were, were vegetatively propagated. It was pretty much a monoculture. Okay. So it completely destroyed all of those um, plantings. Like Panama really suffered a lot. Some, they used to call it the Panama disease as well. But as a result, United Fruit and many of these big American companies were at, at the point of bringing in uh, fresh bananas. So they needed new land uninfested land so that caused a lot of t political turmoil between land reform and governments and so forth and um, not to get political but a mil American military would get in there to help out to help out these companies find new land and then these these countries would develop these governments and we would tend to refer to them as just banana republics okay. because we're, we're chasing that fusarium disease but then there was a variety that was bred in England called Cavendish and that's the banana we're eating today it's a little bit smaller. It's not quite as sweet, in my opinion, but most of us don't know that because we don't remember the old varieties. I've heard this as an explanation for why banana-flavored candy does not taste like a modern banana, because I've heard that when they were coming up with the chemistry for that flavor, they were basing it off the old variety of banana. Is that right? I didn't yeah. know that, but that would make sense. At any rate, this new variety quickly replanted all those areas, and everybody was happy, or at least most of the people were happy, were producing this new variety, but now a new strain of fusarium has come in and wow. it's now devastating these plantings there. Fusarium has been part of, there's a lot of stories about it. Years ago, remember that contact lens solution that was causing the problem in people's eyes? I don't, but I wear contacts, so maybe yeah. I should have. It was maybe five, eight years ago. 
there was a it was a contact lens solution and oh. uh, that was a fusarium in there. Oh wow! And it's funny how it was just strictly just a, a soil-borne pathogen, but now with antibiotic resistance mm -hmm. and compromised immune systems and everything like that, we're seeing more and more fusarium popping up in human pathology. It's alarming. As someone who studies plant disease, do you have any feelings on growing in monoculture and any ideas on how the agricultural system could be improved in the future, potentially? Yeah, for large-scale farming, the monoculture system you know, worked well for mechanization and for such like that. But for sustainability, it seems like there must going to be need for more diversification. Companion planting and smaller scale rotations and so forth certainly has tremendous advantages. Uh, fusarium can, can last in the soil. In the literature, they claim 10 years. That has not been documented well to my, I think, about four or five years mm -hmm. is, as long as it's there. So, um, you know, rotating out of these fields for that period of time would be sufficient. But you have to, you know, rotate with a plant that's not a host. Most fusarium, certainly the wilts, the fusarium wilts are extremely specific. Now, you and I, and we just spent all afternoon planting the fusarium wilt pathogen of watermelon. But that would cause no problems on chrysanthemum or tomato or, or basil or banana or anything like that because it, it's not a pathogen on those. But the ones on banana would cause mm -hmm. no problems on that. So they're very specific, and that's always very interesting too. It gives you an opportunity to rotate into a lot of non-host. You mentioned um, companion planting, and in traditional Native American culture, they often use the three sisters, mm -hmm. so corn, beans, and Squash. Sorry, Succotash. that escapes me. Succotash. So do you have any ideas of how the three sisters may have suppressed plant disease for one another or how that companion planting may facilitate Yeah, I, th I think, you know, the fact that you have just more diversity, more the microbiomes around these root systems would be different, would be favored by different plants, would just prevent a lot of pathogens from building up and such. That, that system worked great because you had the pole beans, which were legumes, providing nitrogen to the squash and to the corn. You had the corn plant providing a support for the pole beans to grow up. And then the squash, which actually has big leaves and grows out and smothers weeds. So it was really an IPM marvel at how all those things were working together. IPM stands for Integrated Pest Management. Thank you. We did not know. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> so... As we've been thinking about like different ways of planting and different nanoparticles to use, what do you think is maybe an unexpected nutrient or element from the periodic table that promotes plant growth that people wouldn't traditionally think of? In the last few years, we've, um, we've been looking at some what we call beneficial elements. These things have been known, like on rice, the, the Asian cultures have been throwing silicon on their rice plants for a while, and they may not have known it was silicon, but they knew that there was some benefit applying these silicon-rich substrates to, to rice fields, which led to a lot of really interesting research. Chloride is another element, although okay. the, I'm not sure it's a nanoparticle form, but at any rate... usually delivered as a salt. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when people put on their fertilizer, when they're putting on their miracle Grow, they're mm -hmm. completely unaware that they're putting on maybe 8 to 10% of that solution is just chloride. So they've been fertilizing with chloride all along, wow. but they're completely unaware to how important it is. And as people start looking for alternate potassium sources, potassium chloride is usually the dominant salt that's used in these fertilizer preps. As they start looking for alternate potassium sources, potassium carbonates, 
or potassium, whatever, I think we're going to see chloride deficiencies popping up here. For years, we didn't have any issues with sulfur because our, our air was so dirty with cold sulfur and so forth. We were fertilizing it from, the, from that aspect. But as in fact, this happened in Europe many years ago. They cleaned up their air long ago, and now they're getting into sulfur deficiencies. And it's, it's manifesting itself also with, with making plants more susceptible to certain diseases. Is there like one thing that you wish more people knew about plant disease? Well, I'm, a pet peeve of mine is I will tell somebody I'm a plant pathologist and then they'll start describing this worm on, on their plant, you know, and, and, and worms and insects are, are studied by entomologists, you know, and my father was an entomologist, so it's a long f- a family feud <laughs> as, as to what the difference is. Okay, what, what's your future? Let what's me ask you future? a question. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you want to be in five years? Oh, gosh. Is a job interview all of a sudden? Mm, um, sure. I don't know where I want to be in five years. I still have to choose in between that industry and academia divide, kind of leaning towards academia, but we'll see how that changes in the future. Mm-hmm. I am interested in a lot of like science communication aspects, clearly, and I like to do those when I'm not doing research as a graduate student. Mm-hmm. Jaya? Yeah, um, I'm also not entirely sure where I'll fall. Just I want to be doing something that's societally beneficial, potentially with plants, but... That's good. Yeah, it's always a question. Mm-hmm. Cross that bridge when we get there. Good, yep. excellent. So we've had a great two days at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. You've had the best pizza in the world. We've had the best, we've pizza, had the best pizza in the world. In we've the world. planted literally hundreds of watermelons. Yeah, <laughs> hundreds. You've sprayed them all with a variety of interesting products. So we'll see if we find the next fix for the world's problems. This is the first time in the history of the world that those products have ever been sprayed on watermelon. So that's exciting. That's true. We'll that see. is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you very much to Dr. Wade Elmer for being interviewed for this episode. Thank you to Natalie Hudson-Smith and Jaya Borgata for conducting the interview. Thanks, as always, to the National Science Foundation, which provides funding for the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, the producer of this podcast. We always have to offer our usual disclaimer. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. This is our last episode for the season, but we will be back in the fall with lots more great episodes on topics related to nanotechnology, sustainability, and life in science. But in the meantime, you don't have to be without Sustainable Nano. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Sustainable Nano, all one word. You can read over 250 blog posts that have been written by members of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology at sustainable-nano.com. And of course, you can listen to all of our previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website, sustainable-nano.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again in the fall. Thank you.